Hope you have some notes with you. Lots of empty lines for you to fill in tonight. Before we jump into tonight's topic, let me give you one correction from last week. Um, Some of you asked me um, as we were tracking through and we were talking about the doctrine of revelation, and I gave you a verse. One of the verses I gave you was a passage in the New Testament where the Apostle Paul quotes from the Old Testament and from the New and the same sentence, and he calls both of them Scripture. Old Testament he calls Scripture, New Testament he calls Scripture. And I just gave you the wrong reference. So if you want to jot it down, the reference I gave you was 1 Timothy 5.9 that says, let a widow be enrolled if she's not less than 60 years of age. That was not the verse I intended to give you. The verse I intended to give you was 1 Timothy 5.18, just a few verses down. Every, every couple months I make a mistake, so this was one of them. I'm good for a few more months now. Verse 18 says, For the Scripture says, You shall not muzzle out an ox when it treads out the grain. That's a quote from Deuteronomy. And then you notice if you have a red-letter version uh, of the Scriptures, it's red, and it says the laborer deserves his wages, and he's quoting Jesus. And so there's a quote from the Old Testament and a quote from the New And he includes both of those as scripture. So that's just one correction from last week. Tonight we're going to talk about doctrine of God. What is God like? What are his attributes? Um, As I mentioned earlier, sometimes we talk about theology in a broad sense. And theology might encompass sort of anything under the umbrella of Christianity. And so this study is called systematic theology. That's using it in the broad sense. And tonight we're going to use it in the more narrow sense where we're talking about theology, meaning the study of God. What is he like? And so that's our our focus tonight. If I could explain it to you, um, the importance of the first two weeks of this study when we talk about the doctrine of revelation and the doctrine of God or theology proper, I guess I would say that... um, The doctrine of revelation is sort of like the roots of a tree, right? Whatever comes up out of the ground is going to be impacted by what's underneath the ground, right? That's so foundational and so important. What you believe about the truth, about the scriptures, about how you can know true things about God, that's going to color everything else that you believe or don't believe. And then we might say that what we're talking about tonight, the doctrine of God, is sort of like the trunk of a tree where everything else flows out of this, right? Underneath it, we're, we have a foundation of how do we know what we know. But then we're coming up to the trunk and we're saying, this is what we believe about God, and everything else we talk about in the study is going to spring out of this in one way or another. So this is a central topic. I'll put a picture up on the screen, and I just want you to think about diamonds for a minute, okay? Think about diamonds. There's a couple of ways you can appreciate diamonds, okay? One way would be to get one and just to be super excited and to enjoy it and to love it and to be so happy about it. One way would be, I guess, to profit off of it, to use it for what it could do for you. Namely, you could sell it and you could make money and you could have benefit in that way. And another way to study it, I think, or to appreciate it, would be sort of a scientific approach, thinking about what it is and how unique it is. And so I just I found some facts about diamonds, and some of you guys may know this. I hate to, to give you basic information, but diamonds are metastable allotropes of carbon. Everybody knows that, right? 
And the carbon atoms are arranged in a variation of the face-centered cubic structure called a diamond lattice. You know that. This is basic stuff. Um, the exceptional qualities of diamonds are a result of the strong covalent bonds between the atoms. You probably do know, in all seriousness, that they have the highest hardness. And they have the highest thermal conductivity of any bulk material on Earth. Most are formed at high temperature and pressure at depths of 140 kilometers in the Earth's mantle, brought to the surface through volcanic activity. Some of you may know that diamond comes from the Greek word atomos, which means unbreakable. Kind of interesting. And some of you may know that today, this really creeps my kids out when I talk to them about it. If you are cremated, they can take your ashes and put them in an electric hot thing and mash them down and turn it into a diamond. And so I tell my kids all the time, I'd really like you to wear me when I'm gone. Just hang me right around the neck right there. And they look at me like, that is really creepy. So you can look at, at, a, look at diamonds from a scientific perspective. And here's the reality. I sort of joke about the science stuff, but there is a lot of interesting things you can study, right? And why they're unique and why they're valuable and why they're so useful to us. And you can come to them for what you can get out of it, for the benefits. But ultimately, at the end of the day, when a fiancé, or I guess not a fiancé yet, a girlfriend, sees a guy get down on one knee and he pulls out a box, she's not thinking about uh, variations of the face-centered cubic structure or metastable allotropes of carbons. She's just overjoyed with delight, right? I mean, she wants that because of all that it stands for. And I think there's some parallels when you think about studying the doctrine of God, okay? Some people I have I'm not like I'm not in a such a pastor bubble that I don't realize this. Some people think about what we're going to talk about tonight as extremely boring, as very dry, as very academic, as very sort of ivory tower uh, theological ideas and what is the practical value of this and that's just all head knowledge and these guys have too much time to write these books and think about these things. Um, but I really think that there are some fascinating things we're going to talk about tonight. And I'll be honest with you, preparing the lesson and then studying it again this afternoon, it makes my brain hurt. And I'm going to try not to be so you know unclear and confusing that you're just lost but even if I'm really, really clear tonight, some of this stuff's going to make your brain hurt because you are finite and we are trying to wrap our arms around the infinite and it just doesn't reach all the way around. doesn't mean we can't learn true things about God. We're going to talk about true things about God tonight, but it means that comprehending these things completely is just a little bit beyond our grasp. In fact, it's way beyond our grasp. And also, as you think about this sort of diamond illustration... I hope you don't take the things that we're talking about tonight and just say, well, that's kind of a boring lesson, just a bunch of big words, and you filled in a lot of blanks. And we just don't have that many blanks. My hand's kind of sore and is boring a little bit. But I hope you take these things and you think about them and you realize these are the things, the things we're talking about tonight, the truths about God, these are the things that move people to write hymns like the, one we just, the ones we just sang. People who stop and reflect on what God is actually like. And when they really dwell on that and settle on it and meditate on it, it should move you to worship. 
it should move you past the place where you talk about allotropes and carbon matrices and all the sort of sciencey stuff about diamonds where you just say, that's amazing. It's amazing. And you just sort of take that diamond and all the cuts that the, the jewelers made in it and you turn it and you see all these different angles of light. And you try to step back and take it all in at once and it's just it's too much to, to take in all at once. So, again, this is not an academic exercise where I'm trying to show to you, to you look at all these big words I can tell you and, and all these amazing things that are hard to understand. This is me saying you need to know what God is like. And when you know what he's like and you really get it, it ought to move you to worship, right? Knowledge of God ought to lead you to worship of God. And so that's the goal, ultimately. What do I need to know about theology? Here we go. We're going to do this in three big categories. And the first category of thought is that you need to know God is the creator. Okay? I'm going to give you lots of ideas underneath that, but God is the creator. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. I don't think we need to look that one up. And I'm going to give you several ideas that fall under that big idea that God's the creator. Okay? Number one, he's eternal. He's eternal. And I know it's tricky when you're sitting there trying to take notes and flip around in a Bible, but I want you to see some of these verses Look at Psalm 90, verse 2. Psalm 92 says, Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. This is the idea that when you're six years old and you go to Sunday school and you get the courage to ask your teacher when God was born and they say he wasn't, that you go home at night and you stare up at the black of the the room and you think, I'm not sure I understand that. How, How did he not have a beginning? From everlasting to everlasting, he's God. No beginning, no end. He's eternal. He created time. He doesn't exist within time. We experience time. We have a beginning, and your clock is ticking, and you're going to have an end. And yes, we have a hope of an eternity, but here on this earth, we experience time and a succession of events. And until Marty McFly gets the flux capacitor working, we're not going back. It's just one direction. Here we go. And God exists outside of that. I can't really explain it any more than that just to tell you that he doesn't experience time like we experience it. He's eternal. Your brain hurts already. Number two, he is self-existent. Self-existent. Exodus chapter 3, verse 14. You remember this story. This is Moses talking to God at the burning bush. And they're having the back and forth of, if they ask me who sent me, what am I supposed to say to them? And in Exodus 3.14, God said to Moses, I am who I am. Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. The idea here is that God does not exist because of anything else. And he doesn't need anything to continue to exist. You need things to exist. You need air. You need food. You need sleep. You need water. All of those things you understand. God needs 
nothing to exist. And I'm going to take that one step further to something maybe you haven't even ever thought about. God needs nothing to exist and be perfectly happy. He does not need you or me to be perfectly happy within himself. I can't tell you how many times I've sat in a Sunday school class. It's never happened here, but I've sat in Sunday school class. And somebody sort of in discussion has thrown out the the idea that God created us in the beginning because, well, if he didn't, he would have been awful lonely all by himself. And next week, we're going to take that idea and chuck it in the trash because we're going to talk about God being a trinity, having a relationship within himself that is perfectly satisfying and fulfilling. He wasn't lonely in the beginning. He would never be lonely, will never be lonely, isn't lonely. He doesn't need us for anything, for his existence or for his happiness. He's self-existent. We'll talk about that next week. Number three, he's unchangeable. Unchangeable. We just sang about this, right? There is no shadow of turning with thee. You don't change. You are who you have always been and who you always will be. Look at Isaiah 40, verse 28. Isaiah 40, verse 28. Have you not known, have you not heard, the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. I could have used this passage for several of these ideas. He does not faint or grow weary, and his understanding is unsearchable. Really what I'm telling you here when I say God is unchangeable is I'm telling you that God doesn't ever learn anything. You ever thought about that? He doesn't learn. We learn. You learn that... Diamonds have something to do with allotropes tonight. You didn't know that, but you learned it. God knew that. He's always known it. You learned right now. Well, I'm sitting in this room, and it's actually kind of comfortable tonight. Landon didn't make it too cold. Joe Williams didn't make it too hot. You didn't know that before you got here, but now you know it. God doesn't learn things like that. He knows everything from the beginning. His understanding is unsearchable. He doesn't age. We change, right? We change because we grow and we get older and we change because we learn things and we have new experiences. God is unchangeable. Sometimes theologians will say he's immutable. He's unchangeable. Okay? One, two, three, four, five. He's a spirit. John 4, 24. That's Jesus. We won't look that one up. That's Jesus talking to the woman at the well and he says, God is spirit. People who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. The idea is that he's not up there with a physical body. I sat in a Bible study one time. I was leading it. And one of, uh, this was a couple of churches ago. And one of the key leaders in our church spoke up and answered a question. And the question was sort of along the lines of what does it mean to be made in God's image? And his answer, it was so shocking. I I didn't know how to respond. His answer was, well, he's just like us. We're made in his image, so this is what we're like. This is what he's like. And I thought, what? Run that by me? Well, you know, we have nose and ears and hands and toes and belly buttons. and He's like us. We're made in his image. And uh, you don't want to shame somebody in that situation, right? But you sort of want to say, no, that's not at all right. 
He's not up there just like a perfected version of us with a nice long gray beard and a, a pretty robe on. The Bible says he's a spirit. Um, he has no parts. He has no size. He has no dimensions. He can't be perceived or experienced unless he reveals himself to us. He's a spirit. Okay? This is a big one. The next one. This is E. He is holy, holy, holy. Isaiah 6. Isaiah has this vision of God and the angels are crying, crying out back and forth. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The earth is full of his glory. And then you see a similar vision that John has in the book of Revelation where he sees all these creatures falling down before the throne and they say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Slightly different, but both saying he's holy, holy, holy. The only attribute of God raised to this third power and the, the Bible is screaming at us saying, this is the most important thing you really need to know about God and understand about God. This is what makes him God. It's his greatness and his perfection. In a sense, it's the attribute that describes all of his other attributes. We say God is a God of love. Well, he's a God of holy love. We say, well, God is a God of wrath. Well, he's a God of holy wrath. Say, well, God is a God of mercy. Well, he's a God of holy mercy. It governs everything else about him. F, he's free. I think people struggle with this one. But he's free. Look at Psalm 115. Psalm 115, verse 3 says, Our God is in the heavens, and he does all that he pleases. He does what he wants to do. Nothing constrains him other than his own character. So the Bible says that God can't lie because that's not within his nature. It's not within his character. But you've got to understand this idea that he's free. Nothing holds him back. Nothing limits him what he can do. Or should do or ought to do. In college, I took a, a class my very last semester. Brooke and I had already got married, and we were both tracking on an accounting degree. And I had one last elective. She was a little bit ahead of me, and so I had one elective I had to make up. And I took a, a Eastern literature class. And we had this guy that taught the class. He's like a classic English professor at college, kind of an older guy, gray beard bald head, nice comb over, wore sweaters every day, and sort of stood up there kind of smugly and acted like he was so smart. And about once every two or three weeks, he would stand up there and reminisce about how he was in fifth grade. He went to Sunday school and asked his Sunday school teacher if God could make a round square. And she didn't have an answer. And his follow-up question was, well, can God make a mountain so big that even he can't move it? And she didn't have a good answer for that. And his point was to say this idea that God can do whatever he wants to do and that he's da-da-da-da-da is just ridiculous. And I just wanted to say, you're ridiculous. I mean, that's silly, right? That, that shouldn't shake your belief. You shouldn't be intimidated by somebody who says something so silly as that, something that's totally nonsensical. What the scriptures are telling us is that he is free. He is in the heavens and he does all that he pleases. Nothing limits him or holds him back. Okay? G. 
He's sovereign. Closely related to what we just said, but he's sovereign. He does whatever he wants to do, whenever he wants to do it. Another way of saying this would be to say he's omnipotent. He's all-powerful. And I've given you, I could give you so many verses here. I tried to keep it short. I've given you two verses. I want you to look at them. Genesis 50, verse 20. This is Joseph talking towards the the very end of Genesis, talking to his brothers about the evil things they've done to him. And Joseph says to his brothers, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. They had an evil, wicked design in what they did to Joseph. And Joseph understood that God had a good, right gracious purpose in it at the same time God was not out of control when his brother sold him into slavery he was completely in control when the brother sold him slavery and I'm giving you this because it's easy to say God's in control of all the good things that happened to us but I'm showing you Joseph is saying God's in control of all the bad things that happened too and you see the same thing in the New Testament the book of Acts chapter 2 Acts 2, look at verse 23. This is Peter preaching on the day of Pentecost. He says, Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, and you crucified him and killed him by the hands of lawless men. You're lawless. You did it. You crucified him. You killed him. And all of that was according to God's definite plan and foreknowledge. He was in control the entire time. He's sovereign over all things. Next, I'll give you the next two together, H and I. He's all-knowing, meaning he's omniscient, and he's everywhere, meaning he's omnipresent. He knows all things, and he's present everywhere. And I'm going to let you read Psalm 139. But David says some remarkable things in Psalm 139. He says, there's nowhere I can go to get away from you. To the grave, down low, to the highest heaven, I can't escape your presence. You're everywhere I go. And he says, you know everything about me. You know the days of my life before I was even formed in the womb. You know it all. Omniscient and omnipresent. One last idea under, under this heading of God being the creator is he's our sustainer. He sustains us. Colossians 1.17 talks about Jesus upholding the universe that he created. So he sustains what he made. He's not this watchmaker that makes the watch, winds it up, and backs off and watch it happen, but he's active in sustaining it. Okay? So he's a creator. Second big heading, he's good. He's a good God. And I'll read to you Psalm 136, verse 1. It says, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. He's a good God. What does that mean? It means that he's wise. Daniel acknowledges that in Daniel 2. He knows what's best. He knows the best end and the best means to get to that end. He's the one that gives wisdom. You could jot down Proverbs 2, James 1, but he's wise. B, it means that he's loving. He's a loving God. Look at 1 John 4, 8. 1 John 4, 8 says... 
anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. He's a loving God. And he goes down a few verses later. You can look um, where he talks about um, if God has loved us, verse 11, that we ought to love one another. He talks about in verse 9 that the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his Son into the world that we might live through him. Verse 10, this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us. And he sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. So we think about God being loving, and we say, of course he's loving. He sent Jesus to live for us and to die for us. But you understand that he was loving even before he made you, right? Okay, flip back to the left and look at the Gospel of John chapter 17. This is one that can keep you up at night. John 17, verse 24. Jesus is praying right before his crucifixion. And he says, Father, the Son, God the Son, talking to God the Father. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you, the Father, loved me, the Son, before the foundation of the world. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but before God ever set his love on you, he set it on himself, the Father loving the Son. It's not just something that came into existence when you showed up on this earth. Now God loves people But that's one of his core central attributes. It's part of who he is by his very nature, this love within the Trinity. And again, we'll talk more about the Trinity next week. So he's loving. C, he's patient. He's patient. Exodus 34 talks about that. He's a patient God. He's slow to anger. This is one that you'll get a lot of pushback on. Okay, This is one where people will say, oh, give me a break. Have you ever read the Old Testament? You're telling me that God is patient when he just wiped out the entire earth with a flood? Say, have you read how long he waited before he did it? He didn't just snap one day out of nowhere and blow everyone away. He waited hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years patiently putting up with these people. And sometimes you'll hear, you'll hear people object and say, are you kidding me? Have you ever read about the genocide in the Bible, the conquest of the promised land? You tell me that God's a patient God, and he just told his people to go in there and wipe all these people out. You say, well, have you ever read about hundreds of years earlier in the book of Genesis when God said that these people were storing up wrath and iniquity and that he was bearing with them, waiting for their iniquity to be full? Hundreds of years went by between God deciding to wipe those people out and actually doing it. He is patient. He is patient. He's merciful. D and E, he's gracious. He's merciful and gracious. And those kind of go together. And I'll let you look the verses up. We sang about his mercy just a minute ago. Um, The best way I can describe this to you is to say, first of all, there's a lot of overlap in these ideas, so you can't draw a a real hard line between them. But generally speaking, God's mercy is the idea that he does not give us what we deserve. He doesn't give us what we deserve. That's his mercy towards us. Think about like your older brother or sister pounding on you when you're 
being a twerp and you're little and you say, have mercy, 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 I give up. And you're saying, stop, stop giving me that. Stop treating me that way. That's his mercy. And he, he withholds what he ought to give us. And his grace is God actively giving us the opposite of what we deserve. Not only withholding his judgment, that's his mercy, but also graciously giving us blessings that we haven't earned and we don't deserve. So he's all of these things. Loving, patient, merciful, gracious. He's wise. Okay? One last idea. And we'll go through this kind of quick so we can get to the why. But God is righteous. He's righteous. You remember in Genesis 18 when Abraham's talking to the Lord about the destruction of Sodom? And he asked God in the middle of the conversation, isn't the Lord, the judge of all the earth, going to do what's right? And the the implied answer in the Hebrew is, yes, he is going to do what's right. He's a good judge, and he always does what is right. He's righteous. What does that mean? It means that he's perfect. Jesus says that in Matthew 5. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. He doesn't lack anything. He's whole. He's complete. It means he's faithful. We sang about that tonight. Great is your faithfulness. He is faithful. He always keeps his word. He's jealous. And this one gives people heartburn sometimes. It gives people struggles because they look at the commands in the scripture where we are told not to be jealous or not to be envious or not to be covetous. And then we read these passages that say he's a jealous God. And it's a hard idea to wrap your brain around, but the bottom idea is this. God will never put anything that is not ultimate, anything that's created, anything that's finite. He will never put that before himself. If he did, he'd be an idolater. He'd be taking something small and turning it into something ultimate, and he doesn't do that. His chief concern, his chief aim, his chief objective, his chief goal in everything is his own glory. And the great news is that a lot of times that lines up with our good. His glory and our good go side by side. But his chief aim is his own glory. He's a jealous God. You can look at Exodus 20. You can look at Isaiah 48. He's just. He always does what's right. He's a good judge. He doesn't ever compromise justice. He does what's right. And lastly, he's wrathful. Jesus says this in John 3. The one who has not believed in the Son is already under the wrath of God. And Paul says it in Romans 1, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against unrighteousness and ungodliness. So he's wrathful. Okay. So three big headings. He's the creator, and he's good, and he's righteous. Why is this important? I'm going to give you five quotes. Okay? None of these thoughts are original to me, but these are really smart guys telling you why you need to know this stuff. Here's the first answer. A spiritual and a saving knowledge of God is the greatest need of every human creature. An unknown God can neither be trusted, served, nor worshipped. That's from a guy named Arthur Pink. He's making this distinction between a sort of an academic knowledge of God and a saving knowledge of God. Right? Not just any knowledge will do. It needs to be a saving knowledge. There's a lot of people that have knowledge about the stuff we're talking about, but it's not a saving knowledge. And he goes on and he says, an unknown God can't be trusted, served, or worshipped. I'll just be real honest with you. I think this is, this is the underlying issue 
in our society today for entertainment worship. And when you understand, to be real fair, entertainment worship sometimes, some places, it looks like laser lights and fog machines, right? And in some places, it looks like organs and choir robes. You understand that? It takes both forms for different people. And the underlying issue for consumer-driven, under, uh, consumer-driven entertainment worship is the idea that we really don't know all that much about the God we're worshiping. And it's awful hard to worship somebody and get excited about worship when you don't know him. And so you've got to get excited about something else. You've got to get excited about the lights. Or you've got to get ex- excited about the nostalgia that you feel when we sing, Great is Thy Faithfulness, or whatever it may be. And the underlying issue is we're not just happy to worship God because we really don't know all that much about him. How many people do you think in American churches could have a a coherent discussion about the stuff we're talking about tonight? It's not rocket science stuff. It's just basic stuff reading through the Bible. If If you're trying to figure out what God's like and you read through the Bible, this is the stuff you come across. I don't think very many people could come up with much of this stuff. How do we expect those people to show up on Sunday morning and get excited about singing songs to that God? How do we expect people to learn about him when our songs aren't filled with good theology and truth about him? And again, let's be really, really honest here. There's some songs in this book that don't have a whole lot of theology. Almost anyone could sing them. In fact, the third song that we sang tonight When I was looking it up today, I found it on multiple sites of groups that we would consider to be cults. And they sing it without any alteration or change. And we think, oh, well, hymns, hymns hymns are filled with good theology. But there's one that is so broad and so vague and so general. And we sang it and we like it and it's a good song and it communicates something true, right? But it's so vague and broad that anyone could sing it and fill it with any idea of God that you want to fit into it. And the same thing happens in this book. If you sing out of this book, and the same thing happens on more popular, current, modern praise songs at times. So don't get to say it's all these new choruses that don't have anything in it. Well, a lot of these don't have anything in it. And a lot of the new stuff has really good stuff in it. It goes both ways. But I'm just telling you, the underlying issue for people being bored with worship and needing something else to get excited about is that they just don't know much about the God that they say they're there to worship. So you've got to find something else to get excited about. An unknown God cannot be trusted or served or worshipped. I've got to go on. I'm out of time. Number two. Interest in theology and knowledge about God and the capacity to think clearly and talk well on Christian themes is not at all the same thing as knowing him. I want you to fill that in and I want you to think about it. This is an Anglican guy named J.I. Packer, a first-class theologian. And he says, interest in theology and knowledge about God is not the same thing as knowing him. So, some of you guys are sports fans. And if I sat down with you and I found out who your favorite sports team is, I could say, tell me about Dak Prescott. Tell me about Ezekiel Elliott. 
Tell me about uh, Sean Lee. Tell me about Des Bryant. Tell me about Dan Bailey. And you could tell me all sorts of things about these guys, where they went to college and what their records are and all these awards they received and all the great things they've accomplished and the position they play, their number on their jersey. You know all these things about them. And then if I said, but do you know him? Well, no, I don't know him. I mean, I know a lot about him, but I don't know him. And the same thing's true with celebrity culture in our society. You could go to the youth room and you could list off any number of musicians or celebrities or reality TV shows or whatever and say, tell me about these people. And they could tell you all about them. But you say, have you ever met them? Do you know them? No, I don't know them. There's no a lot about them. And Packer's saying, and I think he's completely right, churches are filled with people who know about God, but they don't know him. He didn't pull that idea out of the air. He got it straight from Jesus. People on the last day who are going to stand before Jesus and say, Lord, Lord, we know what we're supposed to call you. We're here. And Jesus says, but I don't know you. I've never known you. And they're going to say, yeah, but we did all these things and we filled in all the blanks on Wednesday nights and we studied all the theology books and we know all the stuff. And he's going to say, you know about me. You can pass a test about me. But the demons, James says, can pass a test about God. Read through the Gospels. They know exactly who Jesus is. You're the Holy One. You're the Son of God. Are you here to kill us right now? Are you here to throw us into the lake of fire right now? Because we know that's who you are. There's not a saving knowledge. And they don't know him. Number three, it's certain, this is one of my favorites, it's certain that a man never achieves a clear knowledge of himself unless he has first looked upon God's face and then he descends from contemplating him to scrutinize himself. Calvin says, we all think we have an idea of who we are and what we're like until you catch a glimpse of who God is and then that changes everything you've ever thought about yourself. And until you get that glimpse of who God is, you don't really have a clue who you are or why you're here. You don't understand any of it. You've got to see him clearly first. Number four, I like this one. The low view of God entertained almost universally among Christians is the cause of a hundred lesser evils everywhere among us. This is a guy named A.W. Tozer. Here's what he's saying. Look around, you see adultery, greed, people bored at church. You see people obsessed with sports and obsessed with their kids. You see people who don't care about missions. You see people bickering and fighting in churches. You pick the issue and the sin. And he says, those are all problems. They're evils. But they're lesser evils compared to this low view of God that we hold. If you don't have a good grasp on who God is, that will impact everything else in your life. I told you earlier, it's like the trunk of a tree, right? Your doctrine of revelation is down there. It's the roots. It's providing you life and connecting you to reality. But the trunk is growing up and everything else comes out of this trunk. And he says the low view of God is a cause of a hundred lesser evils. I came across this this week. Just one example of it in the Bible. Remember the story of Joseph? 
and he's sort of a, a braggart and a jerk, and he's boasting to his brothers about stuff, and he's being a fool, and his brothers act wicked. We read about that earlier. They're evil. They sell him into slavery. He ends up in Egypt. And you remember when he's in Potiphar's house, right? We have no idea how long it took him to get from the promised land to Egypt, but this is a long journey. And he gets there, and maybe he bounced around different places as a slave, but he, he lands with Potiphar, and God's blessing is on him, and he gets promoted, and he has a pretty good job, right? And Potiphar's wife wants to sleep with him. She propositions him, and she puts the moves on him, and all this stuff over and over and over again. And his response is twofold. Joseph says to that woman who wants to sin with him, he says, first of all, I'm not going to betray trust with Potiphar. He set me over everything, and I'm not going to turn my back on him because it would be sin against God. Ultimately, he understands God's the one that he gives an account for. How does a young guy whose life has been hell, living in a foreign country as a slave, how does he avoid such great temptation that he probably could have got away with? It's because he knows who God is. He listened when Jacob and and Isaac and all his family members talked about who God was and the promises he made and what he was like. He paid attention to that. And it was belief about God that enabled him and empowered him to resist temptation. One last idea. This is from a guy named Gerald Bray. He says, in the final analysis, our perceptions must be open to correction by what he tells us about himself. So, a lot of times I'll sit with people and we'll start to talk about some of these things. And people will say, well, that's just not what God's like. Well, I just, I don't know that I could believe in a God who was like that. I don't know if I could believe in a God who would do something like that. Well, I'm not sure that I really make sense of that and understand that. To which I want to say, doesn't really matter. Does not matter. If you can make sense of it, it does not matter if you're comfortable with it. It does not matter if you like it. What matters is what does the Scripture say? That's what we talked about last week. Our authority is in the Scriptures. And if the Scriptures say this is what God's like, it's our job not to bend it so that we feel good about it, but just to submit to its authority and to understand who He is. So I think a real helpful thing on this uh, topic in particular is reading. And I told you each week I'm going to bring some books and I'm going to show them to you and recommend them to you. And uh, I'll leave them up here. You can come look at them if you want to look at them, but you can't take them. Because uh, when I loan books out, I never get them back. So I want to keep them. Here's two that are really easy. Um, and they're really short. Look how short those are. Those are like booklets. I should have just said these are booklets, not books. One is by A.W. Pink. It's called The Attributes of God. And one is called Knowledge of the Holy. And in these books, they just take attributes and they spend a couple of pages explaining it, talking about what it means, what are the implications, what are the Bible passages that support it. So they talk about uh, he's omniscient, he's wise, he's omnipotent, he's everywhere, he's faithful, he's good, he's just, he's merciful. Um, same thing in this book. Uh, very short book, easy to read. Uh, his decrees, his knowledge, his supremacy, his sovereignty, his holiness, his power, you get the idea. So these are great books. I read these books before I ever went to seminary and got them, understood them, made sense of them, benefited from them. You do not have to be some kind of big Bible person to, to get those books. Um, another book that I would recommend to you is, uh, 
I put up there foundations of the Christian faith. That's just sort of a, a systematic theology of lots of different things. If you want to understand the holiness of God, I don't think there's a better book than um, The Holiness of God by R.C. Sproul. And I read this book in high school. So you can get it if you're a high schooler. I had to read it about three times in high school to really understand it and make sense of it. And this is one of about, let's say, ten books out of all the books I've ever read. This is one of about ten that I've gone back and read multiple times. I don't almost never do that. But I've gone back and I've reread it and I've reread it and I've reread it. And holding it up makes me want to read it again. So that's a good one. The last two, uh, Gerald Bray, I mentioned him just a minute ago. Let me mention one by J.I. Packer. Packer was the guy that said there's a difference between knowing about God and actually knowing God. And he wrote a whole book on it, and it's called Knowing God. It's not called Knowing About God. It's called Knowing God. And it's a difficult read, and it's a little bit longer than some of the other ones I've mentioned. I'll just mention this. It's got a big thing on the front that says over one million sold. Like, for Harry Potter, I know that that's nothing. But for theology books, that's a lot of books. And they don't sell a million books unless they're really, really cheesy and make everybody feel good. Or they're really, really solid and people like to continue to buy it and grow from it. And this one is not in the cheesy category. It's in the the other category. So there's some books. If you want to check them out when we're done, I'm happy for you to do that. And uh, reading and studying about this is a great discipline Uh, It is not wasted time. It's always not the easiest thing to think about. uh, But if you want to understand who God is and know him, not just about him, but know him, uh, studying and reading is a great thing to do. Here's how we're going to end.